Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases. Today I'm joined by Dr. Sui Wong, who's a consultant neurologist as well as neuro-ophthalmologist working at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospital, as well as Moorfields Eye Hospital. So uh, thanks, Sui, for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. So glad to be invited. So, Sui, before we, um, we've got a couple of cases to discuss today. These are cases that I guess would typically present either to general neurology or or, or may even make it to a neuro-ophthalmology clinic. Before we talk through the cases, um, could we just start by asking a little bit about how you ended up in neuro-ophthalmology and how, as a neurologist, you decided that was the area to go into? Thank you. Um, it was uh, during my neurology training, and um, it was the old school curriculum where we had this massive folder where we had to tick box all the uh, curriculum requirements. And there was this section to do with neuro-ophthalmology as a subspecialty. So at, back then, um, a long time ago, there was a uh, ophthalmologist who was doing a clinic a week. And also I remember thinking, actually, that doesn't feel enough for me. And I wanted to really, really understand eye movements. <laughs> so, so back then I uh, reached out uh, to uh, Dr. Gordon Plant, uh, who was based at the National and Morefields Eye Hospital. I went over to London and I observed Dr. Plant's clinic and I ended up asking lots of questions. I got very interested and thought, oh, there's a lot more to this. And uh, it evolved. So then he, there was a new a job that was um, advertised. So it was the first time they tried to do a fellowship um, that also was open to neurologists, to neurology CCT uh, people. So I applied for it. It was very unusual back then for us to do post-CCT fellowship, but I was uh, really quite keen to be, in my mind, a very good neurologist because I really want to understand the eyes as well because it's the interface with the, uh, with the brain, of course. So that's how I got into it. So I did that clinical fellowship and then... Um, and am now practicing uh, both as a neurologist and a neuroophthalmologist. Now, 90% of my uh, clinics would be neuroophthalmology. I do one clinic a week that is a general neurology clinic, which is wonderful to keep. Excellent. Okay. Yeah, no, I think that's that's uh, interesting to know because it's not the traditional route out of neurology training, but it's, I guess you, you sort of pounced on an opportunity there. Uh, yeah. to, to further your skills and also to highlight actually um, it's great that I'm able to uh, talk about the cases today because actually in neurology understanding eye movements understanding visual fields understanding the vision aspects is just fundamental to practicing as a neurologist and a really firm grasp of it is important so I think uh, with the updated um, curriculum there will be ways that you'll see neuroophthalmology popping up in every sub, sub, uh, so-called subspecialty like in MS you have to understand about optic neuritis you have to understand the various uh, impact of eye movements to um, in Parkinson's disease how vision is affected to uh, in neuromuscular conditions in myasthenia gravis etc etc so it is relevant to all of neurology. <laughs> Excellent. Well, let, let's uh, let's make a start with the cases. So I've got case one for you. It's a 52-year-old male who's presented to the emergency department uh, complaining of visual loss in his right eye. So he describes clouding of the vision in his right eye that's been present since earlier this morning. His symptoms have now been present for over 10 hours. And prior to coming in, he had no visual complaints at all. 
His medical history is significant for type 2 diabetes, hypertension and hyperlipidemia. And he takes glycolyzide, ramipril and simvastatin, as you uh, would imagine. So uh, patients seen in the ophthalmology department who've requested for a neurology consult. So just to begin, as neurologists, we often emphasize uh, about how we localize the site of pathology before we sort of move things forward. How do you approach localizing when the patient presents with visual loss? So I think the first thing, um, the history would really guide this. Uh, as, as the patient describes the visual loss, they'll probably be describing what they're seeing, whether it's an area that they're not seeing or the whole of everything of the whole field. Um, so getting a feel of that uh, from history and also checking whether it's monocular or binocular, asking specifically about cover test that is also helpful. And if it was uh, monocular, getting a feel also of which areas that's got uh, the scotoma okay. or being affected. Is it always straightforward like do, when patients, whether it is monocular or binocular, or can you be caught out uh, sometimes with that? In practice, oftentimes when patients have a say a hemianopic field, they always describe it as the left eye when it's the left side of the visual field. So that one is a very important one not to miss, especially if it's um, um, say migraine episode, uh, visual aura or some transient disturbance. They often say it as a left eye, but really it's a hemifield defect. So doing a cover test or asking specifically about a cover test or asking the patient to go home and record a few more episodes with the cover test would be very important. So okay. that is the key one that I find uh, often um, um, uh, confused by patients. When it's monocular, what happens is they feel like something's wrong with their eye but oftentimes they can't figure out what's wrong until they do a mon they do a cover test and they realize that, oh, it's one eye specific aspects of it. Okay. And any uh, examination technique, I mean, you kind of mentioned about the, the, the um, cover test there. Are there any other sort of specific things you would do in general when the person's complaining of um, visual loss? Um, I would say start systematically, always good to have a system. Um, and it's just the basics that we started if, if, as we all think about with cranial nerves. So cranial nerve number two, for example. So when we say visual loss, I'm thinking probably we have to start off with cranial nerve number two. Um, and it starts from doing the uh, acuity, uh, distance. And it's also, it can be helpful to do near vision. Sometimes it could be a specific refractive uh, thing that's going on um, and using a pinhole say if they we can't see it, they can't see it so clearly using a pinhole to see whether it improves can be a clue when it's an optical or refractive course um, and then doing color vision uh, if there is a difference particularly if from one eye to the other eye and um, visual fields confrontation always important to uh, practice that using the red pin using and another method so red pin plus movement of the finger or counting finger something like that so two ways to confirm the visual field and confrontation um, and then checking the pupil responses um, so that would be nerve number two and then of course looking into the eye yeah. looking into the fundus having a good view of the back of the eye Okay, so um, I've given you a brief bit of information there about this patient. Um, what do you think are the diagnostic possibilities at this stage and what further information do you need to clarify in the history? Um, I would be very interested in actually the onset of this, what's the tempo of onset. So in the brief summary, it's not clear to me whether the person woke up with it 
or whether it developed when after they woke up and if they developed after they woke up, what was the tempo from noticing something wrong to reaching its very most severe level of vision? Um, whether there's any pain, uh, pain with movement, um, whether there are other systemic symptoms that will give a clue to the cause as well. So that's, uh, I mean, and then the rest of the history, we oftentimes pick up if there are other relevant aspects like medical okay. history, medications, et cetera. Um, so the uh, the story is that so this was fairly abrupt in onset and it occurred pretty much soon after he woke up in the morning. So he 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 got out of bed and then was kind of aware that there was something wrong with the eye. Um, he doesn't describe it as being painful and there's no real headache. But when you do push him a bit more, there is a very mild sort of periorbital headache that's come on over the last few hours. At no pain on eye movements when that's asked specifically and color vision as well as the acuity seems to be affected. He did do the cover test when he was at home. And when the right eye was covered, the left eye vision appeared completely normal. Um, and obviously when the left eye was covered, he couldn't see very much at all out of the right eye. Um, mm -hmm. You've asked for some examination things there. So he's on the Snellen chart, he's six over 60 in the right eye, six over six in the left eye. And Ishihara plates, he could get two of them in the right eye compared to all 17 in the left eye. And there appears to be a right RAPD. On fundoscopy, his right optic disc does appear swollen compared to the left. His visual fields, fields seem grossly full to confrontation, but the right eye blind spot appears slightly enlarged. So I, I've just chucked a load of information at you there. So let, let's maybe break that down a little bit. You talked about initially localizing monocular versus binocular. What do you yes. think in terms of what you've heard there, where this would localize to? So I think with the appearance of the, well, the RAPD tells us it's an optic nerve problem. So that's helpful. The difference in the color also helpful. It shows that there is a discrepancy. Um, and um, the, the, so the pupil, the vision and the disc, the disc is showing pathology with the swelling. Okay. So we're localizing to the optic nerve here. And then what do you think are the sort of possibilities of what the cause could be? What's your sort of thought process? So the top two would be inflammatory or ischemic. So something that jumped up, so it's an older person, vasculopath on various other medications. Um, so that is something that's come out. The The pattern of the, the, the degree of the swelling and um, the extent of the visual change, and you're saying that the whole of the field is blurry, makes me think more of inflammation actually. If there was something like an uh, like a ischemic cause, usually <clears throat> also with waking, for example, but it would be uh, typically altitudinal mm -hmm. uh, field defect, and you see them on confrontation. Yeah, but of course there are variations to this. Okay, uh, so um, what investigations would you do in this in a case like this? So the first thought, because it was quite, if there is quite a lot of swelling with that degree of acuity change. I'll be thinking optic neuritis needs to be actively excluded here and uh, managed accordingly. So MRI would be important. Uh, MRI orbits uh, would be helpful, I mean. Um, the other thing would also be talking about the differential diagnosis is um, when we talk about ischemic. So I would be interested in the anatomy. 
the anatomy. So the swollen eye is hard to know what was the anatomy before it was swollen or it distorts it a bit. I'll be interested in the contralateral eye. So whether there is um, crowding of the disc, which would be a risk factor for uh, an ischemic optic neuropathy, for example. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and any blood tests that you would do? So when it comes to um, inflammation, um, let's split it for a little bit. If you are going to, is this um, an optic neuritis type picture, then we should be uh, doing the bloods for optic neuritis. Um, in this situation, it's a bit atypical, older person, anterior disc swelling, and the current thing that we now know, the anti-MOG antibodies uh, with the disc swelling quite anterior would be one of the things at the top of my mind. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so that's that. Um, oftentimes we have to look for other inflammation or uh, differential diagnosis to that. So that includes infective things, um, syphilis, uh, for example, not to forget that it's uh, having a, resurg a resurgence, um, I would say. Um, and um, I'll be also thinking along the lines of whether there could be other inflammatory, inflammatory vasculitic type aspects. So inflammatory markers would be helpful here. Also uh, inflammatory markers, when we start thinking about um, the ischemic causes, arteritic causes could be picked up from all that as well. Okay. So um, the patient went on to have sort of thorough investigation, including MR with orbits. Um, yeah. they, they, they even had a sort of lumbar puncture because of the concern about inflammation and all of that kind of returned normal or negative. And the patient was seen um, afterwards uh, and uh, a diagnosis was thought to be probably that this was a non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, uh, given his yeah. vascular risk factors. So um, I guess just to close on this case, thinking about the uh, blood supply to the optic nerve and, and to the eye, uh, can you just comment on what the blood supply to the optic nerve is and how you kind of think about that? Basically, the supply would be uh, coming from a branch of the ophthalmic artery. But the really important thing to uh, note is that it would be the small end vessels. So it would be branches of the posterior ciliary, particularly, and then there are also uh, contributions from the choroidal and retinal um, uh, collaterals. But in essence, it is very much small end vessels, uh, and which means that it's usually this sort of thing is not embolic in the way that you think of as uh, uh, embolic uh, brain infarct, for example, because it's a small end vessels. And it's also the uh, end vessels that's got minimal anastomosis, so be very uh, at risk of border zone uh, infarction, for example. So hence, um, it's important to think of if, say, somebody has got significant hypotensive episodes, perioperative and you see both nerves getting swollen you have to remember that there could be a risk here with an ischemic border zone infarction yeah and I think it's kind of I guess it's important what you sort of advise the patient isn't it because telling someone they've had a stroke of the eye or the or the nerve coming from the eye might be a little bit misleading if it's a different sort of mechanism of stroke but I guess ultimately it is a stroke because it's a vascular problem so yeah it's, yeah. it's the term is important there I agree. I don't tend to use the word stroke because patients think of it as a different uh, way. But I talk about the vascular supply. I talk about vascular health. Um, 
the, the, the main risk factor oftentimes when we see in the group of people with non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, it tends to be the anatomy of the eye itself. Hence, I talk about the appearance, whether there's crowding of the discs um, in the, uh, for this patient. But there are important aspects about uh, treatable things. Vascular risk factors is mentioned, making sure that their diabetes is treated. I talked about the hypotensive uh, end vessel effects. So if they're taking anti-hypertensives, there is this move to say that they should try to take it in the morning rather than at night because oftentimes at night there is for the drop of the blood pressure with sleep and whether it could affect that, which is also another theory out there about why um, people wake up with it um, with a, a vision disturbance. Although the other side of the debate is that we spend a third of our lives sleeping. So <laughs> by chance, there would be that. Um, and I, I don't know if you've got a definitive answer to this, but do you think there is a role for antiplatelets uh, with these kind of cases or is it a kind of unknown? So um, short answer is unknown. Uh, there is no clinical trials to guide that. Um, and the practice globally really varies. So many people in the UK would not say, would not give antiplatelet because um, would not give antiplatelet therapy there are risks and benefits to all this and there are potential risks to it. Um, but then there are other places, um, I know like in the US sometimes they do ask, they do offer antiplatelet therapy, uh, but it's unknown and it's never going to be answered by a clinical trial because the, the attempt to, uh, to set that up has uh, shown that the numbers needed and the cost of it would not allow it to run. <laughs> and and um, I guess you're seeing this patient, I don't know, two, three weeks down the line and they're asking you, you know, is there any chance for my vision to come back in that eye? It's still very affected. Do you, do you think at that stage it would be unlikely to, to get any better? Well, I would keep an open mind um, because if we look at, there is a research uh, trial that they attempted to set up for uh, non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, a decompression trial, because the the thought process when the trial was set up was if there is acute swelling, could we do surgical decompression to improve the outcome? Uh, the recruitment was not uh, successful, so the trial was abandoned. But what was helpful was the natural history data that was obtained from that. So it just it does show uh, that you know up to a year there is a good proportion of people. Uh, my memory says thirty percent, but I have to go back to the paper. But there is a good proportion of people that seem to improve by a line on the chart. Um, and um, sometimes this is not noticed by the patient. So really, it could be truly improvement by a line or whether it could be that the person who's affected has adapted to the scotoma and they could eccentrically fixate better. So, so yeah, yeah, these things. Okay. And then finally, to close on this case, um, we've mentioned the term there, non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy. So I'm presuming by that there are ischemic optic neuropathies that are arteritic. Um, are you able just to comment on that and maybe some of the clinical features that might steer you towards that and how you might manage that differently? Yes, um, a very important uh, differential diagnosis to never miss would be uh, arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy from giant cell arteritis. So that would be the older age group um, and um, there would be the classic features usually, but not always, which is why it's important to safety net with the patient and do the bloods. Um, could be a scalp tenderness, a jaw claudication, um, proximal myalgia, systemic uh, 
features, uh, night sweats, uh, unexpected weight loss, etc. And really important to always do the inflammatory markers, ESR, CRP, um, for example, to make sure that that is uh, captured and safety netting the patients because that may the first presentation may not show the uh, the signs yet. Okay. Um, and of course, systemic, systemically, we have to remember that in younger age group, they may have vasculitis. So a vasculitic cause, which then comes from the history and other systemic features, but that is rarer than GCA. Always need to remember, though, that it's a differential diagnosis out there. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much, Sui. So we'll move on to case number two. Um, so I guess this is, again, someone probably typical that you might see in the neuro-ophthalmology clinic. So you've got a 26-year-old female referred to A&E following a routine attendance at the local opticians who've discovered bilateral disc swelling. So the patient denies much in the way of symptoms. She gets occasional episodic headaches over the last few months, sort of a background dull ache most days, and then two to three times a week, the pain might be severe enough that she needs to lie down. She doesn't really have much in the way of visual symptoms, but on direct questioning, she does have a few instances where she's noticed her vision might momentarily, quotes, black out, end quotes. Um, and that tends to occur, it tends to occur in the mornings if she coughs or sneezes. Medical history is otherwise largely unremarkable. She's not taking any regular medications. She's recently gained 10 kilos in weight and currently weighs 110 kilograms. Examination demonstrates bilateral disc swelling. Visual acuities are six and six, both eyes. Visual fields are full to confrontation. So to start with, what are your initial thoughts when you hear this case? And is there anything else that you need to know? Well, actually, this is a very nice case to compare with the last one to talk about the disc swelling. So you can see here, you've just described somebody with disc swelling, but the level, of the, the visual function seems to be quite good. Uh, on the bedside testing compared to the other one with the disc swelling where the visual function you had down to 660, etc. So, um, but coming back to this case specifically, so we're, we're hearing here bilateral disc swelling, um, potential symptoms of raised intracranial pressure. The first thing is uh, this is uh, papadema until proven otherwise. Papadema, um, by, when I use that, I'm implying that it's raising intracranial pressure as the driving cause. We haven't figured out yet what the intracranial pressure cause could be. It could be a brain tumour. It could be something else. That's where we have to head down next. Okay. And so what would be your next steps with regards to investigations? Um, firstly, not forgetting that bedside examination always start off with that. Oh, of course, we have already gone through a very good history, which we can come back to that again. But we are talking about the um, the bedside investigations, inverted commas. I would say making sure that we actually document what's the blood pressure, not forgetting that um, hypertensive, um, uh, malignant hypertension can cause this swelling. So, um, what would be the blood sugar? We could do see cases, usually unilateral, where there could be this swelling related to the diabetes, uh, papillopathy, for example. Uh, we want to know all that. Um, the... Next steps, uh, brain imaging is the first thing. There are other tests that we would be doing whilst we do that, some bloods as well. Um, but I can talk about that uh, in okay. a moment. But <laughs> And um, are there any times where you see cases like this that, that it's thought to be disc swelling, but actually when you have a look at it, it's it's not disc swelling, it, it's something mimicking that. Is that something that can happen? Yeah, um, so the classic one would be crowded discs. 
And the thing is, uh, sometimes without the benefit of uh, three-dimensional viewing of the disc, it you know with just the uh, it could look like it's swollen. And of course, sometimes even with a three-dimensional view, the crowded disc could look swollen. But it's just pushed forward or elevated versus swollen, like with fluid around it in papilledema. So that would be that. And then sometimes there is uh, something called optic disdrusion. It could be uh, the deposits and crystals underlying uh, underneath the disc, or that's put looking pushing it forward, or sometimes even on the disc. Okay. Urgent investigations are organised. CT scan of the head and a CT venogram are done. This shows normal appearances, no obvious sort of brain tumour, and no obvious venous sinus thrombosis. Comment is made that the venous sinuses do look a little bit narrowed at the transverse sigmoid junction. So um, you've got the patient in front of you. What would be your next steps and what are you looking for? Um, what are the bloods like? This is a young blood, woman. Bloods would, be, bloods would be normal, yeah. I haven't included those, but bloods are normal. Very good. Because I asked that specifically because we must remember that um, pseudo raising intracranial pressure or pseudotumor cerebri uh, without a brain tumor there, uh, iron deficiency anemia, very important, rapidly reversible cause by treating it appropriately, which I've seen it missed because we don't tend to think about that uh, otherwise. So yeah, I'll be asking about the bloods which you've done and then also about medications. Uh, you know, you always have to go through all that. Uh, but that is all clear from what I understand. So I, what we do need to do is a lumbar puncture. Okay. And a lumbar puncture is organized and the opening pressure is recorded at 32 centimeters of water. The constituents are normal. So what, what do you think of that value? Is that raised? What What's kind of your normal range for CSF pressure? Um, so, yep, that's very good that you mentioned constituents normal because that is the one that sometimes people forget to clarify. So 32 is raised. Um, I would go with, a bit, particularly in the clinical context, always remembering the clinical context first and then putting the investigations um, uh, in context with that. So 30, more than 30, often always truly abnormal, less than 20, normal 20 to 30 degree zone again guided by the clinical context there is a um, diagnostic criteria which gives a 25 cut off as a minimum uh, before one has a diagnosis of idiopathic intracranial hypertension okay um so it sounds like here we're working towards a diagnosis of idiopathic intracranial hypertension is that fair to say yeah, that's right. So we have now excluded all the other causes, um, the, the common causes, medications, the, the, the anemia. Um, one thing that I would also ask is whether they have symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea, because that's also an important cause not to forget. Okay. And what advice would you give the patient? So I will very delicately explain about diagnosis. And this is really quite key here because um, patients with IIH through the IIH UK charity have shared about how stigmatizing and how traumatizing it was being told about um, the diagnosis and feeling blamed about the weight. So I do um, mention about the association with weight and I also share that weight loss leads to remission of this condition. Okay. And are there any medications that you might start at this point? So I would consider acetazolamide. So that's guided by a few things. If somebody has got very mild swelling, like, you know, and uh, visual function is good, very motivated, and, you know, right on, its, right on their way to um, embark on a lifestyle change to lead to weight loss, I may hold off acetazolamide. But if somebody's got really severe swelling, 
I would give it while to to protect the vision whilst we uh, do the weight loss. Okay, so um, I've got a bit more further history on this case then. So one month later, you see the patient in the outpatient clinic and she mentions that her headaches have been getting worse and she describes a constant headache that's that's more severe, uh, that's becoming more frequent. She's found herself taking painkillers on a fairly regular basis, mainly uh, paracetamol, occasionally um, cocodamol. Uh, the patient struggled to lose weight and actually has gained two kilograms since the last checkup. Her optic nerves remain swollen. Her visual acuities are now six over nine in both eyes. It was six over six before. And uh, uh, urgent visual field checkup is uh, check is performed. And you can see those below, um, which maybe you'll be able to describe uh, to, to listeners. So um, the visual field, let me just open up that document you sent me. Um, shows enlarged blind spots and also nasal uh, nasal restriction in this. So it is starting to sound very worrying. Somebody who's symptomatically worsening and, you know, her visual fields is worsening. And um, yeah, yeah, definitely. So what are, you, what, yeah, what are your thoughts when you're seeing this lady in clinic? What, what are your priorities? Um, so there are a few things that we have to do uh, more immediately uh, to protect the vision. So the lab, the papilledema, how severe was it? So yeah, is it like very yeah. severe? Yeah, let, let's consider that severe then, yeah. I mean, the, the key priority here is we have to uh, imp uh, control the intracranial pressure. So I think in this case, we don't have a choice, but we have to do a lumbar puncture. Uh, mm. We try to obviously avoid repeatedly lumbar puncturing, but this, in this situation, somebody who's worsening visually, very severe papilledema, we have to lumbar puncture to just do some salvage here whilst we further tight, uh, uh, improve things. Okay. And, and the repeat um, lumbar puncture is organized and the opening pressure remains elevated at 34 centimeters of water. So that, that is kind of drained down again, back to the normal range. Um, so thinking longer term here, so you've done the short term measure. What are your options for longer term management of this patient? So there is also even a medium term here before we go to longer term. So we have done this immediate thing. We uh, have to think about the medications that she's prescribed. Is she taking it? Because some patients may not be taking it um, in terms of the acetazolamide. Is she uh, on an adequate dose? We just have to rapidly increase that um, and titr uh, titrate and add further medications if needed. So hopefully... With the next review, things are continuing to improve. Then we start can can sit back a little bit and go, okay, there are, there are bigger strategies here with regards to supporting her weight. So it's clearly very difficult, um, and which is why it's important to have this very um, careful, empathetic, and supportive conversation about weight. You know, you describe that she's gained weight two kilos since diagnosis, which reflects about how it is difficult. By the time the person come to us with the diagnosis of IIH, there is a long history here. So we have to explore that and support that in a suitable way, looking at what are the resources available, um, uh, including dietetics, uh, whether or tier three programs or other psychology support, for example, if available. Um, painkillers here has been described. So oftentimes we have to start to tease up the types of headaches people have. In this lady, she clearly has raising intracranial pressure, but oftentimes there is also a situation of medication overuse headache, which it sounds like she may well be getting into. 
whether there's a history of migraine and a migraineous component as well that can be managed. So hence the use of topiramate can be useful in situations where there is a very prominent headache component. Being careful, of course, that um, to check that the person is not planning to be pregnant because of the teratogenicity with topiramate. Okay. Do you find that in your practice, there's a, a good correlation between the severity of the headaches and the the visual side of things or can the headaches be really severe but the vision stable and and vice versa yeah exactly that exactly the, the what you just described it doesn't have doesn't necessarily correlate although there are some recent papers um that i you know that's been out to correlate about headache severity and intracranial pressure but when we are talking about the day-to-day -day management of our big cohorts of uh, iih patients we have to remember that there are all these other things that we have to tease out as well um, that could be contributing to headaches. So that's an important thing to clarify. And um, I'll put you on the spot here a little bit, but do you think there's any role for say steroids in a, in a case of threatened uh, vision threatened IAH? Like we know with other forms of, of edema or swelling that people might reach for steroids. What do, what do you think? Ah, very good question. Interesting question. Very old school. Um, yeah so-called old school, not pejorative, but just saying it because it's only been described um, to be used in that way. Um, so even uh, the Dr. Plant, who's now retired, uh, who was very influential in my training uh, in neuroophthalmology, um, he does not use steroids uh, or has not used steroids from the long time I've been working with him. And he did say that how... and but there is this use of it as a rescue remedy. When I was a registrar, um, uh, yeah, I remember uh, it was being used as a rescue yep. remedy. Um, it's a bit tricky though, because there's always the rebound effect, the weight gain effect. So I'll be, I'll be cautious. I have not used it. And I, I think the role would be limited. There are better ways to deal with it than steroids. And, and how often, well, not how often, but are, are there ever roles for more sort of invasive procedures uh, for patients like this? I'm thinking specifically, I guess, neurosurgical procedures or neurointervention. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, definitely. And in fact, this may be a nice little plug <laughs> for a study that is uh, has been funded by the NIHR and we're in the process of setting up, led by the incredible Birmingham group, um, to compare shunts versus stents. Um, for this, for patients who's got fulminant IIH with really severe vision, risk of visual loss. So yes, there is a role for uh, shunts uh, for these patients. In practice, what I have been able to do to avoid shunting in some would be we rapidly increase the medication. We are guided by the lumbar punctures. Sometimes we have in these situations, sadly, have to do it uh, more than once, um, guided by that to see whether it's improving, um, and very rapidly within that as we are to whilst we are preparing, we are doing that whilst we prepare for neurosurgical intervention. Neurosurgeons may put a lumbar drain in, for example. I must say this practice does vary depending on neurosurgeons, but the one that we work with would put a lumbar drain in, and over about five days. Uh, continuing draining it appropriately because as you know you drain it it doesn't last more than a day so it's a case of seeing whether that would break the cycle and we have in practice seen the anecdotal description of it breaking the cycle of this worsening ones uh, but really um, oftentimes they end up needing shunts um, 
as the emergency intervention for site-saving measures. Okay. So, I mean, it, it sounds like, as with lots of neurology working closely in an MDT environment is kind of crucial there, especially for the expertise of either neuro-ophthalmology or neurosurgery. Absolutely. And also working also with ophthalmology. So um, ophthalmology, ophthalmology, if you don't have the neuro-ophthalmology uh, setting, because I'm, I'm sure not everybody works in the center with neuro-ophthalmology, um, there is the links with ophthalmology department where they can do OCT scans, which is a nice way to see how the optic disc swelling is changing or not. In my practice, I'm very fortunate to have all the facilities that are like that. And it really helps guide uh, the nuances of uh, next steps. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks, Suri. Those are two cases that I guess are, are typical of what you might see. Um, just to close with, I guess, do you have any advice for any neurology trainees who might be listening and are interested in learning more about neuro-ophthalmology or, or, or maybe even going into it as a career option? What, what would be your advice to them? Uh, very well chosen <laughs> if they're interested it's very exciting very interesting and we when we work in this area we really can make a big difference with uh, helping patients and supporting colleagues as well um, in terms of next steps for further training um, please uh, reach out to the people in your local area who do neuroophthalmology oftentimes when they see trainees coming attending clinics they're very happy about that uh, we definitely need more neuro uh, people working in this area um, and uh, you will find some people coming from neurology some people coming from ophthalmology so you know there is a nice mix out there the uk neuro ophthalmology society um the UKNOS.com is our website, has got our regular annual meetings, educational. We also have prizes for trainees who present work, including quality improvements. So we do encourage trainees to be interested and involved. We are also setting up a page which may imminently be posted up about the local uh, areas with neuro-ophthalmology services or regional, thing, uh, regional teachings. Um, I would say reach out um, to us. Uh, you could reach out to the UK neuro Society, and we will try to link you up with uh, somebody who's local to yourself. Um, definitely encouraged. Yeah, thank you very much, and thanks for your time today. You're most welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk. 